0: Welcome, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. This is Roger Baker, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Sky and Telescope, brought to you by Ayers LA. Today's articles are from the November 2021 edition. In today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at news notes, which are various news articles from the world of astronomy. Next, life beyond Earth. By centuries end, the author thinks we'll have an answer to this question, but what kind of answer? Written by David Grinspoon Next A is for Andromeda This ancient constellation leads in more ways than one Written by Fred Schaff Next An almost total lunar eclipse Observers across North America get to watch the moon slip through Earth's shadow Written by Bob King Next Dings on the moon A coordinated global effort is dedicated to documenting flashes on the lunar surface. Written by Diana Hannah Next, building the James Webb Space Telescope. A generation in the making, the James Webb Space Telescope is the synthesis of scientific vision, technological advancement, and engineering achievement. Written by Paul H. Geithner. Next, the ever-changing Great Red Spot. Jupiter's famous storm is the focus of a rich tradition of discovery by amateur astronomers. Written by Thomas A. Dobbins And finally, coming full circle. After nearly a century of working for s and the author returns to where he began. Written by Dennis DeSico. And now, on to today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. News Notes Mars NASA's InSight reveals first look inside Mars. NASA's InSight mission has reported the first direct observations of another rocky planet's interior structure, publishing a trio of studies in the July twenty-third Science. The results, a surprisingly thin crust, a one-layer mantle, and a large core, will help scientists understand how Mars formed and evolved, Measuring Mars quakes wasn't just a matter of sending a seismometer to Mars. In a sense, the scientists also had to wait for the planet to come to them. While InSight recorded 733 Mars quakes since early 2019, the vast majority were weak surface tremors. Of course, when you're in the middle of the situation, it can feel as if, oh my God, it's not working, says Simon Stoller. The team waited several months after the seismometer's deployment before a shake occurred deep enough to probe the planet's interior says seismometer co-investigator Bridget natmeyer indrum That quake already showed what additional deep ones would confirm. The Martian crust was thinner than expected. At first, analysis suggested that the crust had two layers and was only 20 kilometers or 12 miles thick beneath the InSight lander. This was thinner than any models had predicted, natmeyer indrum says. Additional events and analysis revealed that the crust could have an additional layer, making it twice as thick, 39 kilometers, and somewhat closer to expectations. A thinner crust would be very surprising indeed, says Doris Brewer, who was not involved in the study. A thin crust would raise many questions about how it was formed and what this means overall for the thermochemical evolution of Mars. InSight data can't distinguish between the two possibilities yet, though Natmeyer endrum hopes additional data and analyses will help resolve the ambiguity. Meanwhile, Amir Khan and colleagues found that the mantle of Mars is simple and deep, extending 400 to 600 kilometers down. Compared with Earth's two-layer mantle, Mars' single-layer version is less insulating, so the core loses heat more quickly. Nevertheless, InSight data confirmed that the core is fully liquid. With the analysis of six Mars quakes coming in at just the right angles toward InSight, Stoller and colleagues found that the core is on the larger end of what previous indirect measurements had suggested between 3,580 and 3,740 kilometers across. Its seismic shadow blocks quakes from the active Tharsis rise on the other side of the planet. Such a large core probably contains a high proportion of lighter elements. It also probably doesn't have the solid inner part that Earth's core does. On Earth, the cooling inner core is the power source of the magnetic dynamo. As it crystallizes, it releases heat that churns up the outer core. Without an inner core, the global magnetic field on Mars most likely came from the release of the intense heat of the planet's formation, which is why it only lasted a few hundred million years. NASA recently extended the InSight mission through the end of next year, past the current Martian winter, when Mars quakes are difficult to detect due to high winds. During that time, the scientists expect InSight to double the number of high-quality, low-frequency quakes that enable them to probe the planet's interior. Liquid water spots below Martian surface might be clay. Researchers have identified dozens of radar bright spots within the layers of ice and sediment deposits at Mars' South Pole. These discoveries follow the 2018 announcement of a large radar bright area beneath those deposits that researchers said might indicate a subglacial lake. However, the additional finds, as well as further experiments and analysis, suggest that the spots might be ancient clay deposits instead of liquid water. A study published in the July Geophysical Research Letters, Aditya Kuhler and Jeffrey Plott used the Mars Advanced Radar for subsurface and ionosphere sounding. MARSIS instrument aboard the European Space Agency's Mars Express orbiter to chart the subsurface boundary where the polar deposits end and the Martian interior begins. Their investigation revealed dozens of new, smaller radar-bright regions at this interface, which appear to be widespread beneath the South Pole's ice and dust deposits. If these bright areas are indeed lakes, they must be very salty. Even though the subsurface temperatures on Mars drop below the freezing point of pure water, dissolved salts can keep water liquid at lower temperatures. However, a new study from a team led by Carver Bearson, also in the July Geophysical Research Letters, suggests that super-salty water isn't the only option. His team shows that highly conductive materials like saline ice and hydrated clays can strongly reflect radar. Another study in the August issue of the same journal, led by Isaac Smith, supports the case for clays. Smith's team investigated a type of clay called smectites, which are common on the red planet's surface and found near the edge of the south polar cap. The scientists studied smectites in a laboratory under frigid conditions that mimic the Martian subsurface. They found that hydrated smectites make a brittle paste when frozen, one that could reproduce the radar signatures detected by Marses. Liquid water might have hydrated smectites more than 100 million years ago, before layers of ice and dust preserved the clays. But Beerson says that salty ice and other clays are still radar-reflective contenders. Exoplanets Kepler Finds Possible Outcast Earths Astronomers have uncovered four candidate Earth-mass rogue planets by searching for micro-lensing events observed with NASA's Kepler satellite. Rogue planets drift aimlessly through space after ejection from their stellar system during the early stages of planet formation. Ian MacDonald and colleagues announced the new planet candidates in the August monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. When a star or planet passes in front of a distant star, It acts like a magnifying lens to temporarily brighten the background star, an effect known as microlensing. Rogue planets are best spotted via microlensing because they're too faint to detect directly. However, the smaller the lens, the shorter the microlensing event. earth mass planets magnify background stars for only a couple of hours, making them difficult to differentiate from stellar flares. A team led by McDonald poured through data from the rejuvenated Kepler mission, dubbed K2, to recover previously detected microlensing events and find new ones, too. Four of these new events lasted only a couple hours at most, implying rogue planet masses comparable to Earth's. Previously, astronomers had detected only a handful of such short-lived microlensing episodes, making the new events a valuable addition. But Price Mraz, a fellow rogue planet hunter, cautions that these planet candidates might not be true drifters. Figuring out whether these objects are indeed free-floating or not is trickier, he says. Some of these planets might be orbiting far from their host star, he explains. So, the microlensing signature would be nearly identical to that of free-floating planets. If outcast Earths are truly typical in our galaxy, future facilities such as the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope should easily detect their signals. Solar System Amateur Tracks Down New Moon of Jupiter An amateur astronomer has pinpointed a new moon of Jupiter, first spotted in 2003, but whose orbit was never determined. If approved by the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planet Center, the find would bring the tally of known Jovian satellites to 80. Kai Lee, the amateur who last year recovered four lost Jovian moons, examined images that David Jewett, Scott Shepard, and their colleagues had recorded almost two decades ago with the 3.6-meter Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, CFHT. In 2003, that group announced the discovery of 23 tiny Jovian moons, and the images they used remained available online to the public. Recently, Lee found another potential moon in images from the past survey, one so faint that it's probably just one kilometer across. That led to its discovery in additional survey images obtained throughout the spring of 2003. From there on, the orbit and ephemeris quality were decent enough for me to search observations beyond 2003, Lee explains. Ultimately, Lee tracks the moon, provisionally designated S2003J24, through 76 observations taken over 15.26 years, or 5,575 days. That's the equivalent of nearly eight orbits, says David Tholand more than enough to show its bound to Jupiter and to consider the trajectory well-secured for decades. Lee reported the orbit they determined to the Minor Planet mailing list on June 30th. The Moon is a typical member of the CARME group, which includes 22 other small retrograde satellites with periods of around two years. They're probably all fragments of CARME, the first of the group to be discovered and by far the largest. Galaxies Lost and Found Milky Way Size Orphan Cloud 10 billion suns worth of hot gas are hanging in space in a fog almost 6 million light-years across. Bigger than the Milky Way, this orphan cloud was probably torn long ago from the galaxy it once called home. Astronomers found the cloud by its hydrogen's deep red glow, roughly 310 million light-years away, in the LEO cluster, Abel 1367. Follow-up observations revealed X-rays coming from the cloud, making it unique among lonely clouds that astronomers have previously spotted. Chongi and colleagues report in the August Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. When a galaxy falls into a cluster, it passes through hot gas that fills the in-between space. This material rams into the galaxy's cooler, denser gas, pushing it out. Even bereft of its stellar nurseries, the galaxy will sail on through the cluster with its older stars and dark matter still bound to it. Astronomers have nicknamed gas-streaming galaxies jellyfish for their appearance. In this case, though, G and colleagues couldn't find an obvious parent galaxy. Based on this and observations of motions within the cloud, The researchers estimate that it's half a billion years old. Yet, the orphaned gas ought to mix with the hotter and sparser surrounding medium, evaporating within 30 million years. The team suggests a weak magnetic field. Six microgauss, typical of that between stars and the Milky Way, might have helped the cloud survive. The fun thing to me about the orphan is how unusual it is, says Rise Taylor, who was not involved in the study. Clearly, whatever process formed it can't be all that common, or we'd find such features everywhere. Team leader Ming-Sung says the team is obtaining more information about the cloud's cooler gas to help unravel its mysteries. Black Holes Event Horizon Telescope reveals curious black hole jet. The Event Horizon Telescope collaboration has peered deeply into the heart of the radio galaxy Centaurus-A revealing details of its long, powerful jets. The results appear July 19th in Nature Astronomy. CEN-A lies only about 12 million light-years from us and hosts a supermassive black hole that's actively swallowing gas and shooting out a narrow jet from top and bottom. The team used seven facilities across half the globe to image the jet at radio wavelengths. Based on years of detailed simulations, astronomers think that the center of the black hole's jet, its spine, is largely empty. It's essentially a giant corkscrew-like magnetic field with a few electrons and other particles zooming through, explains team member Michael Jansen. An immense number of particles blown off the black hole's big fluffy gas disk sheath the spine. Because the jet doesn't point directly at us, the light from its fast-moving spine largely misses our line of sight. But the electrons spiraling around in the sheath emit photons at all sorts of angles, so we can see the edges quite well. What should be emphasized is how incredibly rare it is to have images on this scale, so close to the black hole, says Eileen Meyer, who wasn't involved with the study. There are basically four or five, so any new data on this scale is important. Especially interesting, both the team and Meyer point out, is that an etch-brightened jet structure also appears in the active galaxies M87, Markarian 501, and 3C84. These galaxies' black holes all consume gas at fairly low rates, like CEN-A's, So, there may be something universal going on in such systems. In Brief Resolving the Mars Methane Mystery New measurements from NASA's Curiosity rover show that methane concentrations near the Martian surface vary on a daily cycle, a finding that could help reconcile conflicting data. Curiosity first sniffed the gas on June 15, 2013, and has since found background methane levels between 0.2 and 0.7 parts per billion in volume. But in 2019, the European Space Agency's ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter failed to find methane after several months of operation. ExoMars examines sunlight that has traveled through the atmosphere's upper layers and should be able to detect particle concentrations as low as 0.05 parts per billion in volume. Then John Moores realized that the discrepancy could boil down to the time of day. Curiosity takes methane measurements at night when the atmosphere is cool and calm, while ExoMars looks at the atmosphere at sunset after a day of sun-driven mixing. The Curiosity team tested this idea by bracketing a nighttime measurement, which yielded 0.5 parts per billion in volume, with two daytime ones which didn't pick up any methane at all. The data take a step toward reconciling the Curiosity and ExoMars results, but work remains to understand why methane doesn't build up in the atmosphere over time. Christopher Webster, Morse, and colleagues reported the results in the June Astronomy and Astrophysics. Witnessing Gravitational Instability Astronomers have reported a gravitationally unstable disk around the young star Elias 227 in the June 20th Astrophysical Journal. Gravitational instability is one path to planet formation. When disks become massive enough, they may collapse directly into planets or form spiral arms that trap material for future planet formation. A team led by Teresa Panette carreno used the Atacama Large Millimeter-Submillimeter Array to spot the Hallmark Wiggle a signature of gravitational collapse, in the spiral arms of the disk around Elias 227. The wiggle is a disturbance in the disk's rotation on scales coinciding with instability-induced spiral arms. Panet Carreño's team saw the wiggle by observing the motions of carbon monoxide in the disk, which traces the harder-to-observe hydrogen gas. Furthermore, a companion study concluded that Elias 227's disk has 17% the mass of its star, creating conditions ripe for gravitational instabilities to occur. Together, the spiral, wiggle, and mass all indicate the disk is gravitationally unstable, providing convincing evidence of this planet formation mechanism in action. Life Beyond Earth? By century's end, the author thinks we'll have an answer to this question. But what kind of answer? Written by David Grinspoon Over the 80 years in which Sky and Telescope has been informing us about the universe and those who explore it, scientific and popular beliefs about extraterrestrial life have fluctuated between grim and optimistic. Before the space age, many scientists were naively confident about the prospects for life nearby. With only telescopic data to constrain our wishful thinking, it was possible, and popular, to imagine vegetation forming the seasonal wave of darkening on Mars, or soaking up the water we thought was raining down on Venus. In 1962, NASA's Mariner 2 began the work, which continues today, of replacing conjecture with observation. With the first successful spacecraft visit beyond the Earth-Moon system, it showed conclusively that the surface of Venus was far too hot for liquid water or organic life. Three years later, Mariner 4 revealed a cratered moonscape on Mars that dampened hopes of finding the red planet awash in green. Since then, we've been through several rounds of raised and then dashed hopes of finding nearby company. Orbiting Mars Mariner 9 spied dried-up riverbeds. Carl Sagan and a number of colleagues convinced themselves that Martian soil organisms might be merely awaiting a splash of chicken soup. But their 1976 Viking life experiments came up short. NASA soured on Martian life, but only temporarily. Expectations that life on Mars lies just under the next rock have repeatedly risen and fallen. A discovery, later proven false of chlorophyll, a hint of possible fossils in a meteorite, and perennial announcements of water and whiffs of methane all have revived hopes, at least for a little while. Meanwhile, in the outer solar system, we've discovered worlds that hold their oceans on the inside. Europa, Enceladus, Titan, and several other moons, even the dwarf planet Pluto, all are possible homes for aqueous life. And don't count out Venus. As I've written, there are reasons to suspect that, despite Mariner 2's reality check on our dreams of an Earth-like neighbor, a habitat may yet lurk in the clouds. So even if, as some of us suspect, Mars is completely dead, multiple places remain in the solar system where life optimists can invest their hopes, if only because we haven't really explored them yet. But I believe that in another 80 years, we'll have the answer to, are we alone? The discovery could come in one of those unexplored corners of our own system. But given the sheer number of exoplanets, the odds seem good that, after we've carefully observed thousands of them, we'll have found unmistakable biosignatures or even technosignatures. By the time the next century arrives, I bet we'll have identified several classes of inhabited worlds and be well on our way to a mature science of comparative astrobiology that can investigate the cosmic distribution of life. But what if we haven't? It's hard to prove a negative. Yet, what if we've plumbed the ice moon's oceans, sifted through the Venusian clouds, and examined scores of high-resolution exoplanet spectra, and found not a trace of anything swimming or breathing? Then we will be pretty far down the path of concluding that there really is something very peculiar and unique about our planet and its denizens after all. If that's the case, then in some strange sense, the universe is our responsibility. Either way... Life is precious. Let's work toward a sustainable presence here on Earth so we can keep exploring and find out how lively our universe is. David Grinspoon wrote his first Cosmic Relief column about how the field of astrobiology is looking up for the January 2009 issue. A is for Andromeda. This ancient constellation leads in more ways than one. Written by Fred Schaff. A is for Andromeda. It's a catchy phrase that suggests the constellation comes first, and it does in a couple of interesting ways. Most obviously, Andromeda leads the way in the alphabetical listing of the 88 official constellations. Let's be glad that the roll call didn't begin with a faint and obscure figure like Antlea, the air pump. In constellation-by-constellation constellation star guides, like the classic Burnham Celestial Handbook, It's wonderful to get off to a smashing start with essays detailing Andromeda's marvelous galaxy, color-contrasting double star, and its many other highlights. Andromeda also leads the way on the celestial sphere by virtue of the fact that its main pattern is dominated by three second-magnitude stars that stretch in right ascension from zero hours to just past two hours. The only other bright constellation occupying this right ascension range is Cassiopeia, But for observers at mid-northern latitudes, Cassiopeia is circumpolar and visible all year round, so it doesn't quite have the strong seasonal association that Andromeda does. One practical advantage of being located near the zero-hour line is that most star atlases order their charts from north to south, starting at zero-hour right ascension and proceeding eastward. From the classic Norton Star Atlas to the modern sky and telescope's pocket sky atlas, you can count on finding Andromeda in the first set of non-circumpolar star maps. For many sky watchers, the constellation's name is closely associated with M31, the famed Andromeda galaxy. The object was first described around AD 964 as the Little Cloud by the Persian astronomical writer Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi. Until the early part of the 20th century, astronomers referred to M31 as the Andromeda Nebula and thought it was located within the Milky Way. In reality, the imposing spiral is even larger and populated with more stars than our own galaxy. At a distance of more than two million light years, the Andromeda galaxy is the most distant object readily visible to the naked eye. How bright is M31? The usual figure given is around magnitude 3.4, but because the galaxy is an extended object whose light is spread over a large area, It's certainly not as easy to detect as a star of the same brightness. Most sources suggest that M31 appears as an elongated smear of radiance about one degree wide and three degrees long. But talented observer Walter Scott Houston was, under excellent conditions, able to trace M31 out to a length of four degrees with his unaided eyes and five degrees with large binoculars. Let's return to the constellation's three brightest stars mentioned earlier. The trio are arranged in an appealing line. Working eastward, they are Alpha Andromedae, Alpha Rats or Sira, Beta Andromedae, Mirak, and Gamma Andromedae, Almac. Remarkably, each star is spaced almost exactly one hour of right ascension from its neighbor. Alpha Rats is at 0 hours 8 minutes, Mirak at 1 hour 10 minutes, and Almac at 2 hours 4 minutes. Even more amazingly, their magnitudes are virtually identical, with Alpha Rats and Mirak both shining at magnitude 2.07 and Almac at magnitude 2.10. Another interesting twist is that each star is also at double the distance of its neighbor. Alpharetz is 97 light-years away, Mirak is 200 light-years, and Almac is 400 light-years. Each star also has at least one notable trait all its own. Alpharetz performs double duty by making the northeast corner of the Great Square of Pegasus. Mirak is a striking orange-red star of spectrotype M0. And ALMAC is a lovely telescopic double star with component suns shining gold and blue, respectively. All good reasons to make Andromeda your first stop on autumn evenings. As a young boy, Fred Schaaf read A for Andromeda, written by astronomer Fred Hoyle and novelist John Elliott. An Almost Total Lunar Eclipse Observers across North America get to watch the moon slip through Earth's shadow. Written by Bob King. Yes, it's November, and yes, the weather's getting colder, but don't put your telescope away just yet. It's going to be a busy month. Topping the list is a very deep partial lunar eclipse on the night of November 18th and 19th, visible across the Americas, Northern Europe, Eastern Asia, Australia, and the Pacific. The partial phase, when the moon enters Earth's umbral shadow, begins at 2.18 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on November 19th, and greatest eclipse is at 4.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. At maximum, 97% of the lunar disk will squeeze into the umbra, leaving just a narrow sliver of the southern limb poking out. The moon will be just 1.7 days shy of apache, so its apparent size will be slightly smaller than usual. This helps increase both the depth of the eclipse and its duration. The moon exits the umbra at 5.47 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, nearly three and a half hours after it entered. Depending on volcanic activity and other atmospheric factors, the lunar disk's color may range from yellow-orange to coppery-red or even ruddy-brown. Whatever the hue, the near-total aspect of the eclipse guarantees a colorful and beautiful sight, with the moon floating some 5.5 degrees south-southwest of the Pleiades Cluster around the time of maximum eclipse. You might try your hand at carefully noting the moon's appearance so that you can compare one eclipse with another. The Danjan scale is typically used to estimate the moon's brightness and color during a total eclipse. But there's no reason you can't put it to use during this near total event by hiding the moon's uneclipsed edge behind a building. The scale ranges from L0 for a very dark eclipse to L4 for a bright copper-red or orange eclipse. Another fun project is to carefully time when the umbral shadow crosses prominent craters. Such crater timings help gauge the size of Earth's shadow, which can vary depending on the state of our planet's atmosphere. Roger Sonat and Sky and Telescope Senior Contributing Editor plans to update predictions for umbral immersion and immersion times for selected craters on the magazine's website at skyandtelescope.org prior to the eclipse. He'd be happy to receive your observations at Roger.Sanat@verizon.net. at verizon.net. DINGS ON THE MOON A coordinated global effort is dedicated to documenting flashes on the lunar surface. Written by Diana Hanakainen We've all seen bits of comet dust self-immolate as they plow into Earth's atmosphere during meteor showers. But did you know that bits of dust ping the moon as well? Meteoroids, to give them their official name, that hit the moon have no medium in which to burn up and instead slam full throttle into the lunar surface. In doing so, they carve out a small crater while emitting a very brief flash of light. In November 1999, David Dunham anticipated a particularly active Leonid meteor shower. He coordinated a network of observers armed with scopes and video cameras and instructed them to point at the moon. Dunham himself observed at fellow astronomer George Varro's home in rural Maryland. Over in Texas, Brian Kudnick, sans recording equipment, participated by viewing through a 14-inch scope. During one of his stints at the eyepiece, he noticed a very brief orange-yellow point-like flash near the earthlit limb of the moon. Kudnick relayed this information to Dunham, who then carefully played back his tape, and there it was, an unmistakable pinpoint of light at the location, and within one second of the time Kudnick reported. Reports of lunar transient phenomena, as all manner of fleeting visual to-dos on the moon are collectively known, go back centuries, but skepticism as to their existence prevailed until that fateful night in November 1999. This event spurred people to review their own tapes, Kudnick said, and an additional five impact events were confirmed soon thereafter. And voila, a new field of science flickered into being. Spurred on by amateur success, NASA, as well as other organizations around the world, established lunar impact flash monitoring programs to perform real-time observations of collisions in the solar system e.g., Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 plunging into Jupiter in 1994. They also strive to better understand the lunar environment for possible future bases. To this aim, NASA operates several telescopes at the Marshall Space Flight Center. But due to inclement weather and occasionally uncooperative mechanical bits and bobs, coverage isn't complete and amateur contributions are essential for filling in the gaps. You'll need a tracking telescope and a low-light astronomical video camera, the crucial element in the 1999 discovery. Use a scope with a field of view that can cover as much of the moon's night side as possible, while at the same time limiting glare from the day side, recommends the British Astronomical Association's Tony Cook. His lunar flash observation of January 2017 was the first confirmed event from the UK. Big aperture, small f-number, he advises. But you needn't go overboard. Cook himself uses an 8-inch Newtonian. You can find reasonably priced video equipment online. But avoid one-shot color cameras. A low-noise CMOS astrophotography camera, for example, would work well. You'll want to see as much of the unlit moon as possible. The waxing and waning crescent phases are optimal, specifically from three days after the new moon until two days after first quarter and two days before last quarter until three days before the new moon. Heightened meteor activity will increase your chances of spotting a flash. Lunar eclipses also make for favorable ding-watching. And this November's deep partial lunar eclipse on the 19th occurs just after the peak of the Leonid meteor shower, even with a zenithal hourly rate of 10. Kudnick normally recommends a ZHR of 20 for regular observations. It's worth pointing at the moon. Once you've recorded your lunar impact flash, head over to the ALPO or BAA websites and follow their protocols for submitting your data. Kudnick, Cook, and a whole cohort of lunar impact flash enthusiasts are eager to hear from you. Diana Hedekainen loves picturing meteoroids pinging the moon. Before we go on, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Building the James Webb Space Telescope A generation in the making, the James Webb Space Telescope is the synthesis of scientific vision, technological advancement, and engineering achievement. Written by Paul H. Geithner Telescopes are powerful tools of exploration, enabling humans to probe far beyond where we can go ourselves or with robots. And arguably, no instrument better embodies the advances spurred by our cosmic curiosity thus far than the James Webb Space Telescope. Scheduled to be ready for launch by October 31st, when this article went to press, Webb is the long-awaited scientific successor to the Hubble Space Telescope and promises to be the world's premier space science observatory. Even before the Hubble Space Telescope launched in 1990, Scientists were considering what machine ought to follow it. Hubble sees, primarily, ultraviolet and visible light, with some capability to observe at the shortest near-infrared wavelengths. Scientists understood even then that, as mighty as Hubble would be, its 2.4-meter primary mirror and suite of instruments likely lacked the capability to explore the era when the first luminous objects formed. That era, called the Cosmic Dark Ages, occurred in between the condensation of the primordial plasma into neutral hydrogen and helium roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and the ionization of those atoms by the first objects to emit visible and ultraviolet light, a few hundred million years later. This is the time when the lights turned on in the universe. But what exactly happened then? What were the first stars like, and how did they form in an environment so different from the one we think contemporary star formation requires? How did galaxies, which are the universe's large collections of ordinary matter and unseeable dark matter, assemble and evolve? How and when did the supermassive black holes that we observe at the hearts of most galaxies form? What came first? Stars, black holes, galaxies, or something else? Hubble can't answer these questions. Instead, to observe the end of the cosmic dark ages, we need a telescope exquisitely sensitive to infrared light. This is because the universe has been expanding since the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, which means that everything is moving away from everything else. The farther away something is, the faster it is receding. Light travels at a finite speed, so this expansion stretches light's wavelengths as the photons travel toward us, such that the farther away an object is, the redder it appears. The very first luminous objects to form after the Big Bang, whatever they were, are so distant that the ultraviolet and visible light they emitted more than 13 billion years ago reaches us today redshifted into the infrared spectrum. So the goal was not only to gather enough light to reach back to the cosmic dark ages, but also to achieve a resolution at longer infrared wavelengths comparable to what Hubble provides at visible ones. To do this, Webb needed a primary mirror of at least 6 to 7 meters, about 20 feet in diameter, and preferably a symmetrical one to reduce unnecessary image distortion. Such a mirror would also enable it to peer deeply at much closer targets, such as newborn stars and exoplanets sheathed in dusty gas clouds. The targeted wavelength and sensitivity ranges meant the telescope had to be space-based, above the interference from water vapor in Earth's atmosphere, and the telescope needed to be cold. Below 60 Kelvin, or minus 213 degrees C, or minus 352 degrees Fahrenheit, so that its own thermal emission didn't blind it to the infrared light coming from celestial sources. This is how mission planners settled on creating a large infrared telescope stationed in space and far from Earth's room temperature glow, some 1.5 million kilometers or 1 million miles from Earth's nightside, at a gravitational balancing point in the Sun-Earth system called L2. Building the envisioned telescope has been a feat of invention, ingenuity, and perseverance that makes it a milestone in the creation of space observatories. Engineering Challenges Several inventions and technological advances were necessary to make Webb feasible, size, combined with the need to operate at cryogenic temperatures, conspired to present the greatest challenges. Webb's aperture exceeds the five-meter diameter of standard, commercially available launcher fairings. In other words, there was no nose cone wide enough to carry the telescope to space if we built it with a symmetrical one-piece mirror. Moreover, using the technology behind Hubble's lightweight monolithic glass mirror would have required an impractically massive support structure. Assembling the telescope in space wasn't an option either. It would have added too much expense and risk. Thus, engineers developed foldable optics and structures so that the telescope could fold up to fit in a rocket fairing and withstand the rigors of launch, then deploy in space into a different operational configuration. Instead of one big primary mirror, we built a segmented one of 18 hexagonal mirrors, each 1.3 meters across, and about 40 kilograms or 88 pounds. Together, they make a 6.5-meter-wide honeycomb. NOR is unfolding the only transformation the telescope will undergo once in space. The challenge of operating at cryogenic temperatures is a dotting one that affects every aspect of design and testing. Materials change dimensions with temperature, typically expanding when warm and shrinking when cold. What's more, different materials behave in different ways, and we had to use more than one kind of material to build web, so we had to account for each part changing in its own way. This meant developing new processes to shape and polish optical surfaces perfectly wrong at room temperature, such that they become precisely correct at cryogenic operating temperature. The surfaces also had to attain that shape predictably over and over again through repeated testing, and finally once launched and cooled down. Beryllium became the mirror material of choice. Beryllium is light and stiff, and it virtually stops changing dimensions at temperatures below 100 K. Ordinarily, beryllium is unpredictable, however, so technologists developed a new beryllium microsphere powder that the team then fused using intense pressure and heat into mirror blanks. Once the blanks were machined, ground, and polished, technicians coated each mirror in gold, which is excellent at reflecting infrared wavelengths. The segmented mirror, along with the other optics and scientific instruments, are mounted on structures made of a special formulation of carbon graphite epoxy that is very stiff, strong, and relatively stable over a wide range of temperatures, all the way from above room temperature down to cryogenic. The Origami Observatory The sting of Hubble's spherical aberration was fresh in people's mind during Webb's early conceptual development, and naturally, when thinking about a new space telescope, One thinks of optics and how to make and test them. But there's more to Webb than its optics. Webb is a giant and frigid origami observatory, and the difficulties presented by a folding space observatory that will deploy in space by remote command and operate at cryogenic temperatures add to the challenge. Virtually every modern spacecraft unfurls, deploys, or releases in some fashion, such as extending a solar array for power generation— By necessity, Webb takes on-orbit releases and deployments to the extreme. The telescope primary mirror backplane structure has to fold up for launch and then deploy precisely. Primary mirror segments have to be movable in any direction so that they can correctly align to a few millionths of a millimeter and act as one. The secondary mirror must deploy on a hinged tripod and also move in any direction. The telescope structure is attached to the spacecraft bus when stowed for launch, but a telescoping tower must extend to separate the structure and bus so that the telescope is isolated from any mechanical vibrations or heat from the spacecraft and sunshield. The star tracker, used to monitor the telescope's position in space, is attached to this extendable tower and must release from launch locks on the bus once in space. Various radiators must also release from launch locks and deploy to provide thermal and mechanical isolation. The SunShield posed the grandest stowage and deployment engineering challenge of them all. The SunShield's job is to be an umbrella, shielding the telescope from the heat of the sun, as well as stray light from the Earth and the Moon. This protection allows the telescope and instruments to radiate their own heat away and stay cool in the 7K deep space at L2. The shield needs to let through a mere millionth of the total heat hitting it, attenuating more than 200 kilowatts of solar insulation down to a fraction of a watt. It also needs to span a much larger area than the telescope itself, roughly that of a tennis court, so that it provides adequate shadow for the telescope to access as much of the sky as possible. Lastly, it must weigh extremely little, stow compactly for launch, and deploy reliably, both on the ground multiple times for testing and in space for the one time it really counts. These requirements are met by a design consisting of five kite-shaped gossamer membranes stacked in layers. Each membrane is about 165 square meters, or 1,700 square feet, in area and coated with vapor-deposited aluminum. When deployed, the space between each membrane gets progressively wider from the center to the edges. This allows heat that isn't reflected away and manages to pass to the next layer and then bounce its way out to the edges and overboard to space. Even the membrane edges are aligned to millimeter tolerances to ensure no infrared photons from edges heated by the sun will have a line of sight to the telescope optics and become a source of stray light. As the largest element of Webb, the sunshield will unfold in grand fashion. A graphite epoxy frame will cradle the Z-folded membranes for launch and then extend to deploy the membranes in space. An elaborate system of motors, stem drives, pulleys, and cables will deploy the sunshield skeleton and pull the membranes taut. Because membranes and cables are non-rigid floppy things, hundreds of simple, ingenious straps and elastic clips must restrain them as they're deployed in the weightlessness of space to preclude snagging and entanglement. In all, deployment of flight hardware involves 178 non-explosive release devices, more than 40 major deployments of 30 different types, 155 motors, and more than 600 pulley assemblies, and nearly 100 cables totaling about one-quarter mile in length beyond state-of-the-art. Then there are the advances spurred by Webb's instruments. To accomplish the science goals, infrared detectors had to become better than what existed when we began planning. Engineers had to adapt electronics so that the combination of any noise from the detectors with heat from the mirror itself would be less than the signal from the zodiacal light, the background glow from the diffused dust in the inner solar system. This is where the 60K requirement comes from. But to observe mid-infrared wavelengths takes even more extreme measures. The mid-infrared instruments' detectors have to be colder than 7K to operate, which they won't achieve by simply sitting out in space at L2. Instead, Webb needs its own cryocooler, which required more development. From the invention of a new slit mask for the main spectrometer to advances in cryogenic testing, many technologies had to lurch forward to make Webb possible. Of course, we had to leap over various engineering hurdles throughout the long development, But tackling challenges is part of what makes this work rewarding. Then there are the international hurdles. Science is a worldwide community, and contributors the world over wanted in on the mission from the beginning. The European and Canadian space agencies are both providing instruments and operations support, and the European Space Agency, ESA, is also handling the launch. But there are laws regulating the sharing of information, even with friendly allies. Finding ways to collaborate with our partners and their contractors added a degree of difficulty to this process, but the return in scientific capability has been worth it. Proving it works. A major difference from some other spacecraft is that the entire web observatory cannot be tested faithfully as one fully assembled unit before launch. It's simply too big and complex. That may be nerve-wracking to readers who remember the blurred images Hubble returned when it first looked at the cosmos. To be clear, we've tested Webb's optical system in one piece end-to-end. What's impractical is creating on the ground the environment that Webb will unfurl in. We can't easily emulate weightlessness and perform deployments while in a vacuum chamber, nor is it feasible to replicate Webb's thermal condition. With intense sunlight heating one side and extreme cold chilling the other, and simultaneously run end-to-end optical tests on the complete, deployed observatory in the vacuum. This led engineers to test the observatory in halves, the telescope and instruments as one unit, and the combined spacecraft bus and sunshield as the other. Each was shaken and blasted with sound and subsequently tested for performance in temperature-controlled vacuum chambers. Then, once put together, the observatory was shaken some more to verify workmanship of the final assembly. We learned a crucial lesson from the Hubble Spherical Aberration Experience. Don't rely on the same tools used to make the optics when you test them. This meant we had to build different devices to verify, cross-check, and optically test the entire telescope and instrument assembly end-to-end. The testing required a vacuum chamber capable of cooling the entire telescope and instrument assembly to about 40K suppressing background mechanical vibrations, and housing sophisticated testing equipment. A relic of the Apollo era, the enormous Chamber A at NASA's Johnson Space Center, was refurbished and upgraded into the world's finest large cryovacuum optical test facility for the work. This chamber is about nine stories tall, taller than the Lincoln Memorial Building, so large that the air inside it weighs 12 tons before all but two grams gets pumped out for testing. Engineers placed the deployed flight hardware on a truss structure platform and rolled it into the bottom of the chamber on rails, then connected it to long steel rods suspended from the ceiling. Using a combination of mirrors, cameras, and other carefully tested instruments positioned inside the chamber, we successfully aligned all 18 segments to act as one. We also verified the primary mirror's shape and tested everything from the secondary mirror's positioning to the ability of the telescope to acquire and track targets. Years of careful planning meant that even when Hurricane Harvey hit right in the middle of this 100-day-long cryovacuum test in 2017, We completed it without interruption. Meanwhile, to prove that the observatory could properly manage heat, not only from the sun but also from its own electronics, we had to combine results from multiple tests. To check the sunshield design, we tested a one-third scale model of the deployed sunshield in a temperature-controlled vacuum chamber. To verify that the telescope and instruments would stay cool despite the heat the electronics give off, we built and tested a full-scale version of Webb's core section the thermal grand central station of the observatory to confirm that heat moves around the way it needs to. Such tests required milliwatt level precision. We then combined these results with those from the thermal vacuum test of the bus plus shield assembly and the cryo vacuum test of the assembled telescope and instrument package. On top of all that, we've done exhaustive iterative checks of the unfolding processes. All flight deployable items have been unfolded multiple times. The Flight Sunshield, for example, has been stowed four times and deployed three times before flight. So much of the observatory can fold out that every stow operation was like reassembly, with a regimen of extra checks and precautions. After more than a decade of testing flight hardware, we'll soon be ready for the next step, launch. Opening Web's Eye on the Cosmos Once it lifts off from French Guyana, Webb will undergo an action-packed six-month commissioning period. Moments after completing a 26-minute ride aboard ESA's Ariane 5 rocket, the spacecraft will separate and deploy its solar array automatically per a stored command. After that, we'll initiate all subsequent deployments over the next few weeks from the ground. This is in stark contrast to the seven minutes of terror for projects landing on distant Mars, for example. For them, every step of entry, descent, and landing is pre-programmed and autonomous because of Mars' distance. It's all over before engineers on Earth receive a signal that it has even begun. Webb, however, will be mere light seconds away, so we will be able to control deployments carefully. Webb will take one month to fly to L2, slowly unfolding as it goes. Sunshield deployment starts at day 2.7 and will finish a few days later. Once the shield starts to deploy, the telescope and instruments will enter shade and cool rapidly. Over the ensuing weeks, the mission team will closely monitor the observatory's cool-down, managing it with heaters to prevent escaping moisture from freezing onto sensitive surfaces. In the meantime, the secondary mirror tripod will unfold. The primary mirror will unfold. Instruments will slowly power up, and mid-course maneuvers will insert Webb into a prescribed orbit around L2 on Day 29. Once the observatory has cooled to the necessary low, stable temperature, it'll take several months to align the optics and calibrate the scientific instruments. Assuming commissioning goes as planned, scientific operations will commence about six months after launch. Webb's mission lifetime is designed to be at least five years. But the observatory could last more than a decade, depending on how much fuel we use to achieve and maintain orbit around L2 and how quickly the telescope's components degrade in space. Flagship missions like Webb are generational. They take a long time because they're difficult, and they're expensive because they take a long time. Webb has built on both the legacy and the lessons of missions before it, such as the Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes. It will, in turn, provide the foundation upon which future large astronomical space observatories may one day be developed. Webb is a marvelous machine. It is a remarkable engineering achievement full of scientific potential and promise. It has been built to explore the frontiers of cosmology and astronomy, from observing the end of the cosmic dark ages to sniffing the atmospheres of exoplanets around nearby stars, to perhaps detecting the chemistry that makes life as we know it possible but its greatest discoveries will likely be answers to questions that we have yet to ask or imagine. Deputy Project Manager Paul H. Geithner has held several jobs on Webb since 1997 after coming to NASA in 1991 to help fix and upgrade Hubble. On the side, Paul rebuilds cars and houses and is borderline obsessed with golf. The Ever-Changing Great Red Spot Jupiter's famous storm is the focus of a rich tradition of discovery by amateur astronomers. Written by Thomas A. Dobbins The first unambiguous record of the Great Red Spot dates from 1831, when German astronomer Samuel Heinrich Schwab glimpsed a portion of its outline as a pale bay indenting the southern edge of the dusky south equatorial belt. This muted appearance attracted scant attention until 1878, when the feature suddenly took the form of a vivid brick-red ellipse measuring 40,000 kilometers long by 12,000 kilometers wide, or 25,000 by 7,500 miles. It dominated the face of the planet until 1882, when it abruptly faded. Although it has slowly but steadily diminished in size and its ruddy color has waxed and waned many times during the past 140 years, the Great Red Spot remains Jupiter's most iconic feature and the subject of intensive study. (laughs) Two exceptionally talented amateur astronomers spearheaded efforts to understand its nature and evolution. The first was Percival Braybrook Molesworth, an officer in the British Army's Corps of Royal Engineers, posted to the harbor city of Trincomalee in the colony of Ceylon, known today as Sri Lanka. While there, he installed a superb 12.5-inch Newtonian reflector made by one of the era's most foremost telescope makers, George Calver, on the front lawn of his bungalow on a high bluff overlooking the Indian Ocean. From the site's latitude of only 8.6 degrees north, the planets ride high in the sky and the laminar coastal airflow frequently results in superb scene conditions. Molesworth soon emerged as the leading Jupiter observer of the era, He employed a powerful technique recently devised by another British amateur, Arthur Stanley Williams. Williams recorded the precise times that well-defined features in Jupiter's turbulent and seemingly chaotic atmosphere passed through the central meridian, an imaginary line running from pole to pole, bisecting the planet's disk. By referring to an ephemeris, he determined the longitude of features from their central meridian transit lines. Equipped with an accurate timepiece, a practiced eye can achieve an accuracy of one or two minutes, corresponding to about one degrees of Jovian longitude. Williams discerned the presence of nine discrete persistent currents at various latitudes on Jupiter, all running parallel to the equator. Possessing keen eyesight and seemingly boundless energy, Molesworth recorded a whopping 6,758 central meridian transit timings during the 1900 apparition alone. Not only did he accumulate this vast amount of observational data in neat ledgers, supplemented by beautifully tinted watercolor renderings of the planet, but he also performed the tedious manual calculations required to make sense of it. By 1901, he was able to identify all the principal currents that control large scale circulations in the Jovian atmosphere. The Great Red Spot is sandwiched between a westward jet stream located along the southern edge of the south equatorial belt and an eastward jet stream that runs along the northern edge of the south temperate belt. It rolls counterclockwise between these opposing atmospheric currents like an enormous ball bearing. In 1905, Molesworth reported his strong suspicion that the Great Red Spot was oscillating in longitude with a period of 90 days. These strange accelerations and decelerations with a roughly one-degree amplitude were confirmed during the 1960s by New Mexico State University Observatory astronomer Gordon Solberg, who measured high-resolution photographs of Jupiter taken with a 24-inch reflector on 469 nights over a five-year period. This 90 day cycle has remained remarkably constant for well over a century. Despite the dramatic changes in the size and appearance of the Great Red Spot, the cycle varies by less than two days from year to year and by less than 24 hours over longer intervals. Although features in the South Equatorial Belt's jet stream circle the planet every 90 days, the speed of this current fluctuates considerably. The immutability of the 90 day Great Red Spot oscillation remains a mystery to this day. As early as 1902, observers witnessed encounters between the Great Red Spot and spots in the adjoining currents which were swept by the periphery of the Great Red Spot like flotsam around an island. The first hint of internal circulation within the Great Red Spot that revealed its true nature as a huge anticyclone was reported in 1945 by Elmer Reese, an accomplished observer who worked in his family's Uniontown, Pennsylvania grocery store during much of his observing career. Like Molesworth, Reese was a prolific recorder of Jovian transit timings and an adept interpreter of data. Examining five drawings made by three members of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers in October and November of 1949, Reese noticed that all of the drawings depicted a pair of thin parallel streaks within the Great Red Spot. The position and orientation of these streaks on various dates, he reported, suggest that the Red Spot region is a vortex in the Jovian atmosphere, Rotating in a counterclockwise direction in a period of 10.7 days. In 1963, New Mexico State University recruited Reese to join its Planetary Patrol and Study Project, on which he collaborated with Gordon Solberg and Bradford Smith, on a NASA funded program to photographically monitor Jupiter. By the early 1970s, the NMSU team established an internal circulation period of the Great Red Spot of six days. In 1979, images recorded by NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft confirmed their findings. As the width of the Great Red Spot has diminished at an average rate of 240 kilometers per year, its internal circulation has sped up appreciably. This conservation of angular momentum is similar to a figure skater spinning on top of one skate and retracting outstretched arms in order to rotate faster. For roughly two decades, backyard astronomers equipped with high-speed video cameras and powerful image processing software have routinely recorded delicate features within the Great Red Spot. These images help monitor its internal circulation rate with a high degree of precision. Amateur images played a vital role in determining that the internal circulation rate of the solar system's most powerful storm has shortened an average of 1.2 days per decade since 1949. Well into the 21st century, Jupiter continues to provide rewarding opportunities for amateurs to participate in a rich tradition of discovery. Contributing editor, Tom Dobbins, has witnessed the changing appearance of the Great Red Spot over five decades. Coming full circle. After nearly half a century of working for s the author returns to where he began. Written by Dennis DeSico. Some years ago, on my daily walk to lunch, I paused at a construction site near the Sky and Telescope offices, "'A gruff looking foreman approached me "'and questioned my interest. "'Just neighborhood curiosity,' I said. "'I'm a magazine editor "'and have worked in the building a couple doors down "'for 35 years.' "'Tipping his head incredulously, he grunted. "'35 huh, years? "'Sounds more like a prison sentence than a job. "'I hadn't thought of it that way before, "'but I also hadn't thought about it being a job either.' To understand why requires a rewind to a late summer afternoon in 1963, when my growing fascination with astronomy forever changed. That's when my first issue of Sky and Telescope arrived in the mailbox. Suddenly, astronomy was no longer a static subject learned from aging library books. S&T featured stories, news, and events happening right now. There were things to see in the sky and reports on the activities of both other amateur stargazers and of special interest to me, other telescope makers. In short, the magazine became my monthly update on everything astronomical. A few more years and a driver's license expanded my universe with access to astronomy clubs, conventions, and occasional stops at the s and offices to say hi to editors I knew from various gatherings. Then came a fateful day in June 1974, when an impromptu visit ended with an offer to join the editorial staff— I said yes on the spot, thinking it would be something fun to do until I grew up and got a real job. Thankfully, neither of those things ever happened. For the next 40-plus years, I and my colleagues, virtually all of whom were s t subscribers before joining the staff, focused on creating monthly issues. Each one was as much for us as it was for our readers, and our continual efforts to improve the publication benefited everyone. The work also kept us at the forefront of the science and the hobby of astronomy. As they evolved, so did the magazine. For example, the rise in popularity of Schmidt-Cassegrain telescopes in the late 70s caused a surge in astrophotography. Readers began submitting beautiful color photos like never before, and that prompted a greater use of color illustrations in the magazine. When the Dobsonian Revolution turned deep sky observing into a mainstream pursuit, we responded with articles and regular columns devoted to the topic. As one might imagine, the rise of the internet in the late 90s had a huge impact on the magazine's evolving content. A few years ago, semi-retirement weaned me from saints day-to-day production, but I still regularly dropped by the office. That changed, however, when the staff began working remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Each issue now has more and more material I've not seen before it was printed. That fact really struck with me earlier this year when I caught myself standing by the mailbox flipping through the latest issue that had just arrived. It was as if I'd returned to that summer of 63 when I couldn't even wait to walk back to the house before paging through the magazine for its exciting new content. s and has changed a lot over the years, but so have I. What hasn't changed is how important each issue has been in helping fulfill my love of astronomy. I'm certain it will always be so. Senior Contributing Editor Dennis DeSico always takes his reading glasses along when he walks out to the mailbox. If you want to learn more about Ayers LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the Like button. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision, and print-impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Roger Baker, and until next time, thanks for listening.